This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Good evening, Clarice. Oh, well, hello, Dr. Lecter. Oh, and hello to you, Buffalo Bill. How's it going? It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. Um, okay. So, uh, you may wonder why I am joined in the studio today by serial killers. Fact is, in popular culture today, as in the studio, serial killers are all over the place. They're nearly impossible to avoid in books and in movies, like Thomas Harris's Hannibal Lecter series and the movie Seven. It seems like our fascination with serial killers, at least the fictional ones, is nearly inexhaustible. So what's the deal with that? That is the very question that Leonard Casuto asked a few years ago when he noticed that serial killers were hogging the limelight of his beloved crime fiction. In his new book, Hard-Boiled Sentimentality, The Secret History of American Crime Stories, it's out now from Columbia University Press, he offers a surprising answer to that question one that goes way back to a much maligned literary genre of the 19th century, sentimental fiction. That genre produced not only forgotten soapy novels, but also made Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin more palatable to the masses of people who would not have gone for an anti-slavery screed, but who did go for a warm family story. Casuto is a professor of English at Fordham, and in the past he's spoken on this show about such diverse topics as freak shows and the state of the American university. Casuto joins me in the studio today, along with the serial killers and hard-boiled detective Sam Spade, to explain the connection that he found. Lenny, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. So tell me how you got started thinking about all this stuff. Well, I've been reading crime fiction since I was a child. My father was bringing the books home, and I was reading them when he was finished. But uh, as I got older and became a professional scholar and finally figured out a way to make my job into reading into the reading of crime novels, uh, I found myself interested by in and intrigued by the proliferation of serial killers in today's crime fiction. That um, compared to a generation ago, and especially to two generations ago, serial killers are running rampant through the genre. There are tons of them. And um, I started asking a kind of professor's question, which is, why? Why, 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 this, why this thing here right now? And I thought that I would be able to answer that question in terms of today's crime fiction. But I discovered that, the, uh, that in order to answer the question properly, I would have to retell the entire story of crime fiction going back to the early 19th century. And so that's what I did. So you found yourself going all the way back to something called sentimental fiction. Tell me about that. Sentimental fiction was a uh, one of the most popular literary genres of the 19th century in the United States. And it's a literature that was written mainly, but not exclusively, by women, mainly, but not exclusively, for women. And it featured a worldview that was based on sympathy. The fundamental unit in the sentimental community is the family, and the most important figure in the sentimental family is the mother, who is the moral center of it all. So this was a phenomenon in the 19th century. These books were very, very popular? Yes. Sen- sentimental fiction comprised a majority of 19th century bestsellers among fiction. This was the uh, predominant popular genre in the United States in the 19th century, just as crime fiction is one of the predominant popular genres, perhaps the predominant popular genre in uh, today's century. So your basic argument in this book is that hard-boiled fiction like Sam Spade, that sort of thing, can trace its origins back to this very feminine genre of writing. 
Explain to me how that works and start with sentimental fiction. Work forward. Well, sentimental fiction retails a sympathy-based worldview. Hard-boiled fiction it retails a rugged, individual, self-interested worldview, or so it is, or, or so the stereotype goes. But really, what I'm suggesting here is that hard-boiled fiction and sentimental fiction, too, for that matter, both center on the struggle between these two points of view. Sentimental fiction would not have any need to argue for a faith-based, sympathy-centered worldview if there weren't a temptation to live otherwise. Hard-boiled fiction would have no basis for its own assertion of tough guy, rugged, self-interested individualism if there weren't some longing to feel otherwise. And uh, hard-boiled fiction, since, since its inception in the 1920s, has been working out its, its relation to sentimentalism in different ways ever since. That it, it's In early hard-boiled fiction in the 1920s and 30s, the relationship is very antagonistic. You have these, these tough guys who are deliberately foreclosing any possibility of emotion in their worlds, as Sam Spade does when he sends his girlfriend up the river. You don't love me. I won't play the sap for you. Oh, you know it's not like that. You can't say that. You'll never play square with me for half an hour at a stretch since I've known you. You know darn deep in your heart that in spite of anything I've done, I love you. I don't care who loves who. I won't play the sap for you. I won't walk at Thursby's and I don't know how many other footsteps. You killed Miles and you're going over for it. As hardboiled fiction evolves in the post-war era, for example, instead of, of struggling against any impulse to be sympathetic, the detectives in hard-boiled fiction in the 1940s and 50s are much more willing to embrace their sympathetic sentimental side and admit their rooting interest and become defenders and protectors of the family. In, in, in fact, they, they defend and protect the family so strenuously that they wind up doing a lot of the same kinds of things that mothers do in sentimental fiction in the 19th century, although in a very different male-gendered kind of way. What kinds of things? For example, there is um, an out-of-print, fairly obscure crime novel called The, called the Tiger's Wife about a mercenary soldier who uh, decides that he's going to retire, and he wants nothing more than to get married and have some kids and roll around on the floor playing with them. And so he, he meets meets a woman on the beach, and he's all set to live out his dream. But the only trouble is that she turns out to be a major player in the in, in the L.A. mob. And so uh, instead of retiring to his domestic fatherhood, he winds up getting caught in a gang war. So that works as a surprising plot because you already have in your mind that the woman is going to be virtuous and the guy's going to be tough. That's right. And sometimes you, you don't always have the, have the inversion. Uh, in, uh, in a book called Nightfall by David Goodis, who is a well-respected crime writer of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the main character in Nightfall is um, just a regular guy who is um, constantly daydreaming about uh, the uh, the family that he that he wants, with the kids eating the the reading the backs of their cereal boxes at the table, while he and his wife look longingly at each other, and he's playing football with these kids on the lawn. Stereotypical imagery that, of the sort that you would more be more likely to find on Father Knows Best, and the story of Nightfall is the story of how this guy's life 
veers so badly off course, even as he is longing all the time for sentimental fulfillment. And I, I won't I won't describe the end, but I, I will say that uh, that that book and many others by David Goodis are uh, deeply invested in a sort of father knows best view of the world, and the father's no, father knows best view of the world uh, and of the family is drawn almost directly from the view of the family that was brought into being starting in the 1820s when industrialization in the United States led to the formation of an urban middle class. And as the urban middle class sought to consolidate its own membership and describe its own boundaries, there evolved in the United States a, um, a division of labor and a set of beliefs about what men should do and what women should do and how men and women should live, should live together that is um, the basis for a stereotype that has endured in basically recognizable form for uh, low these 190 years. What were the sort of ele- the plot elements of a sentimental novel, and how did those get changed into the plot elements of a more hard-boiled book? What uh, the sentimental plot and the hard-boiled plot have primarily in common is a search for family. There are as many sentimental plots as there are hard-boiled plots, which is to say lots of them. But they are all deeply concerned with family, and a great many of them center on the search for family. For example, in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I mentioned earlier, you have a strong abolitionist agenda, but the novel climaxes when the former slaves discover the family relationships between them and a broken family, which Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, considers to be the greatest sin of slavery, that it breaks up families. At the end of Uncle Tom's Cabin, the broken families come back together, and in some cases, people discover relations that they never knew they had. By contrast, a hard a hardboiled plot that will pursue the same grail is The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler, where the father of the family hires the detective, Philip Marlowe, because his daughters have gone wayward. He knows where they are, but they are running around in tough company, and his son-in-law is missing. And uh, again, I I will avoid giving it away, but I will say that Marlowe, in this Chandler's first novel, emerges as a defender and protector and restorer of the family as well as he can in a fallen world. And his his efforts involve trying to straighten out family members who have gone crooked and locate family members who have gone missing. A lot of hard-boiled plots begin with broken families, sometimes with missing members. The storyline has the detective piecing together broken families in the same way that the storyline of a sentimental novel will piece together broken families as well. I'm trying to find my sister. I have reason to believe that she's here in San Francisco with a man by the name of Thursby, Floyd Thursby. Um, It seems like this is, you know, I guess you're saying pretty much all about family. Um, But did, I mean, families have always existed. Did, Did the family sort of in fiction in this sense not exist before these sentimental novels started coming out? Well, this is a fair question, of course, that haven't we, don't we all have families and aren't we in some way uh, obsessed with our families, and what's new about that? So to clarify, and this is an important clarification, is that sentimental fiction features a way of thinking about the family that accompanies 
the emergence of the middle class in the early 19th century. And hard-boiled fiction is an unexpected continuation of this tradition of um, expressing not only ideas about the middle-class family, but in the case of crime fiction particularly, anxieties about the threats that real or perceived that may exist to the middle-class family. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio today is Leonard Casuto, and we're talking about crime novels. Casuto's new book on the subject is Hard-Boiled Sentimentality, The Secret History of American Crime Stories. It's out from Columbia University Press. Let's get back to that conversation. So you have um, hard-boiled writing starting to sort of come into play in the 20s, right? Yes. So if it's emerging in the 20s, the next few decades are huge decades for the evolution of the United States. How do these stories change depending on what's going on in the country? Crime fiction is continually enacting a conflict between the self-interested individualistic pose and the image of the idealized family with its sympathetic center. But that um, conflict between those two points of view is played out against a series of changing American backdrops, as you just alluded to. In early hard-boiled fiction, is very much affected by its Depression-era backdrop. After World War II, the Cold War, with its international tensions and also its domestic tensions are reflected in crime fiction, not only with a a move towards uh, greater paranoia, but also because during the Cold War, American propaganda centered on the family as uh, part of what made us better than them. So the crime fiction of this period reflects the kinds of tensions that attend not only a tense post-atomic, a post-atomic witch-hunting paranoiac society, but also such a society where the uh, the image of the family has been put on the front line as something to be struggled over. Okay, moving forward in time somewhat, you say that the serial killer genre arises out of the sort of primordial stew of hard-boiled and sentimental novels. How did that happen? That's nicely said. The serial killer, I think, needs to be understood in permanent tandem with the detective who chases him. And the detective who chases serial killers and the detective who is very prominent in contemporary crime fiction is a hardball tough guy, but he is almost unrecognizable compared to Sam Spade. For example, Robert Parker's Spencer is um, a popular hero of, I guess, 30-some novels in an ongoing series. And uh, Spencer is everything that Sam Spade is not. Sam Spade is sexually licentious. Spencer is monogamous. He's essentially married. And he and his partner have a dog who they call the baby. Spencer has a house with a white picket fence. He cooks, for goodness sakes. He uh, and he, he and the, the cooking scenes in the Spencer novels are described in such loving detail that you can translate them into recipes and cook them at home. So you you have 
a set of detectives who are tough but who have become almost incomprehensibly domestic. And they are chasing after this new character, the serial killer, who emerges in today's generation of crime novels, starting in, he starts to proliferate around the 1980s and, and forward. And the serial killer is the antithesis of the domestic detective. And he is so in particularly by virtue of being the anti-family man. We can understand this maybe best by comparing the fictional serial killer to the real-life serial killer. The serial killers in fiction, they kidnap young women and do various horrible things to them. These young women are, without exception, middle-class family members, people who, when you kidnap them, they're missed, and the police chase after them, and that creates the tension in these stories. Catherine Martin, the 25-year-old daughter of Senator Ruth Martin, listed first as a missing person, is now believed to have been kidnapped by the serial killer known only as Buffalo Bill. Memphis police sources indicate that the missing girl's blouse has been identified, sliced up the back, and what has become a kind of grim, all-too-familiar calling card. Young Catherine Martin, as we've said, is the only daughter of U.S. Senator Ruth Martin, the Republican junior senator from Tennessee. And while her kidnapping is not at this point considered to be politically motivated, nevertheless, it has stirred the government to its highest levels. In real life, serial killers behave quite differently. In real life, serial killers rarely go after members of the middle class, the connected people, the uh, the ones who are members of families, the ones who are missed. Serial killers in real life are usually going after people on the margins, hustlers and drifters and prostitutes, people who, even after they're killed, are sometimes not missed until months or years later because they have severed their ties with their families. That uh, every once in a while you'll read on page 12 about a drifter who has confessed to killing 26 other drifters. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a horrible story, and, it, and, it's a, and it's a cruel story, but it does not make page one. The serial killers who make page one are the rare serial killers who go after the middle class. And the exceptional nature of those serial killers compared to their ubiquity in crime fiction is really telling. That is, in, in real life, serial killers rarely go after the middle class. In fiction, they always do. And that should tell us something. And what it, tell, what it, what it suggests to me is that the serial killer in fiction is all about his relation to the family. Serial killers are anti-family men. They break up families and they do the worst possible horrible things to them. And the detectives who chase after them are the most family-centered version of the hard-boiled tough guy that you could possibly imagine. So what we're, what we're seeing then in this moment, and this is the, the moment that led me to try to reconstruct this whole story, what we see in this moment is the, fa- the family concerns of hard-boiled fiction at a boil, that the figures of the detective and the murderer have reached polar extremes, opposites, that uh, suggests to me that we've got a story that is perhaps climaxing. What are you talking about when you talk about the climax? What's happening next? I think that we are in the process of writing what happens next, that the stereotypes that we use to talk about family today in the United States are little changed from the ones that came into being in the early industrial era before the Civil War. That is, we have been relying for untold generations on family stereotypes 
that have undergone little renovation to meet what are absolutely different times. We're living in a different time today than 1825, and yet we are thinking about family in the same stereotypical way that people did in 1825. And even in 1825, the stereotypes of um, the wife at home and the husband who goes out into the world and makes money and and so that uh, the, the happy nuclear family can prosper, that was no more the case in 1825 than it is now. Census data has never borne it out. It's always been idealized. It's always been a national dream. And yet, we use it as a way of talking about real-life policy. I think that where crime fiction goes from here, and crime fiction, like all genre fiction, is reflective of the world that is going on around it, as well as its own particular concerns. Where the story goes from here, what happens to the serial killer and the domestic detective, I think has a lot to do with whether we as a country and a community, a society, can figure out some new ways of talking about and thinking about the family as we imagine it, and not only the way we imagine it, but the way it really is in the United States. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. Today, the show's all about cooking. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Leonard Casuto. It seems interesting that the whole serial killer genre kind of arises at a time when idealizing American families is really a very popular thing to do, the Reagan era. Why is the serial killer seen as such a threat to the American family? Because genre fiction is always reflecting the, the concerns of the world around it at that moment in time, I started asking myself, what is it about the serial killer that would reflect the concerns of the uh, the United States in this generation? And I, I started thinking about the way that the serial killer is such a pathological figure that he can't he can't be related to as a human being. He's more of a monster. Be very careful with Hannibal Lecter. Dr. Chilton at the asylum will go over all the physical procedures used with him. Do not deviate from them for any reason whatsoever. And you're to tell him nothing personal, Starling. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. And what is that? Oh, he's a monster. I find it much more than a coincidence that the emergence of the serial killer parallels the defunding of inpatient mental health, mental institutions, in the United States during the Reagan era. Reagan capped a period of progressive defunding of mental institutions, and this led to a lot of mental patients being turned out into the streets and the the streets of our cities, the streets where middle-class people live. Now, the, the vast majority of these mental patients are, are harmless, but they don't all look that way. They suffer from various mood disorders, which are variously treatable. In some cases, they're better treated inside institutions, but... Um, they are treatable disorders, and they don't represent the threat of a murderer. Serial killers are considered to have personality disorders, which are not easily treated by the tools of modern psychology. But what serial killer novels do 
is they um, pull a kind of uh, of a switch. They take the fear that people have of mental patients in the streets, and they make a monster out of them. And that monster is a familiar monster because people are much more familiar with mental illness in middle-class space now than before the 1960s. So you are a person in the 80s, and you see these people in the street that you've never seen before. And even if your family is only theoretical, even if you don't really have a family, you sort of think these people are a threat to my family and that whole stereotype emerges. You, yes, you think that these, these, exactly, you think that these people are a threat to me, they're a threat to people I love because they're kind of scary and I don't understand them and they look, they don't, they don't look right. And that's, that's how monsters are made, that you, you take something that is familiar and then you defamiliarize it and you turn it into something that is menacing. And the serial killer, the figure of the serial killer, is a, um, a an extreme version, I think, of the fear that people have of mental patients. One of the things that you talked about in your book that I thought was really interesting is that sort of serial killers are now the currency that we use to talk about fear and invaders, um, and that we talk about terrorists as serial killers, and we talk about Saddam Hussein as a serial killer. What do you think is going on there? Well, I was intrigued by this because I thought a few years ago, and in fact I, I wrote in an article a few years ago, that after 9-11 that I thought that the serial killer would be overtaken by the, um, the resurgence of the espionage novel because espionage was much more akin to the kind of threat that I thought the United States was facing post 9/11 and this wasn't my idea it was one that I that I noticed in in my reading but I found it persuasive and I was shocked to discover that instead of the terrorist replacing the serial killer as the monster of the month instead the terrorist became in the american mind anyway just another kind of serial killer which is uh, a bit of a uh, corruption or a loosening of the term serial killer. But nevertheless, it shows the power of the serial killer as a monster that he's now co-opting the idea of terrorist instead of being muscled off the stage by the terrorist at a time when people are understandably afraid of terrorism more than they're afraid of um mental patients in middle-class living space, which is a, a development which by now I think people are quite used to. So if we are talking about sort of awesomely powerful monster-type people, I have to ask you, do you have an opinion about where movies like Saw and Hostel fit into this whole paradigm? Scholars, I think, like to separate the movies, from uh, the study of film from the study of fiction. But in the case of crime fiction, I think that, that it, that's absolutely not called for because crime fiction and crime movies have been cross-pollinating each other ever since the beginning. Where do slasher movies fit in? Slasher movies are an expression, a very stripped-down and essentialized expression of the serial killer monstrosity, where you cut away all of, the, uh, all of that baggage of plot or character and story, where all you have is the elemental chase between the mental case and 
the uh, typically the the uh, the terrorized woman. She's the last one left. So if we're at the point where we just have these irredeemable serial killers chasing us around, how would any of this get resolved? What can we look forward to in terms of being able to sleep at night? I think that a lot of uh, that the the resolution depends on whether uh, we as a polity, as a country, as a society, can figure out some ways of thinking and talking about real family as opposed to idealized, stereotyped family, and throw out some some of these hoary old stereotypes and address the problems and the pressures that confront real-life families in a real-life way. If we can do that in our, in our political arena, in our social arena, then I think crime fiction will dial down in this area and may find something else to worry about. Will it be as fun to read? There's something enduring about good guys and bad guys. I think that, uh, that as long as people respond to good guy, bad guy stories, and I, I think they always will, they cry, that there will always be writers who are able to write good ones that, that uh, we will be able to respond to and be entertained by. They may reflect different concerns, but they're going to be, they're going to be good stories anyway. Well, Lenny Casuda is a professor of English at Fordham, and his book is called Hard-Boiled Sentimentality, The Secret History of American Crime Stories, just out from Columbia University Press. Lenny, thanks so much. I'm glad to have been here. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.